Poison proxy packs, home security system hacking, and fun. Firefox bugs, all that and more. It's the Naked Security Podcast. Naked Security Podcast, I'm Doug, that's Paul. We normally start the show with a fun fact, and we have a very fun fact, perhaps the most fun, fun fact. What does that mean, Paul? Well, it's Security SOS Week, although it's not this week, if you're listening to this podcast in the week it came out. Uh, That's why we're giving you advance warning. It's 13, 14, 15, 16, September 2021, and uh, it happens online. Uh, like a lot of things at the moment. And it is yours truly, i.e. me, interviewing four world experts on cybersecurity stuff. Three of them just happen to be Sophos insiders. And one of them is someone that we've spoken about many times on the podcast before, Dr. Jason Nurse from the University of Kent. And we will be covering a whole range of cool topics. Each day, there's an event. You register once, you can then show up any day. The talking only goes on for about 25 to 30 minutes each day. That's the idea. So you don't have to sit there for hours. There aren't slides that you absolutely have to follow. So it's not like a webinar where you have to concentrate only on that. You can just sit back and enjoy if you like. And we will be discussing malware, supply chain attacks, cyber insurance, and how to get the most out of it. And... On the last day, Michelle, who is one of our own security team members, will be talking about how to do cybersecurity from the position of somebody who does it inside a cybersecurity company. So that will be red teams, blue teams, and a new and cool idea called purple teaming. So it's a great week of fun, but really informative specialist interviews. We will be talking as experts, but it's designed that anybody can listen in. So even if you're just a home user and you're not responsible for IT at work, you'll still find this fascinating. If you do have anything to do with IT, though, and in particular, if you're a sysadmin or if you're a policymaker or even if you're a CXO who's got responsibility for IT or information security, this is where we're talking about What are the crooks up to right now? What are they probably going to be doing in a year or two's time? And how do we make sure that we don't let them get ahead? Well, we may need to apply some of that expert sensibility, breaking it down in a simpler way to this first story about poisoned proxy packs. And there's a bit of a supply chain element in here. There is, Doug. As you say, that the headline of this story on naked security, poisoned proxy packs, that's P-A-C, all capital letters. Don't worry if you don't know what packs are. We'll we'll go into this because it's kind of a a fascinating trip down memory lane, if nothing else. Pack is short for proxy auto configuration. And a proxy, as you'll probably know, is a server that you connect to to ask it to go somewhere for you. And a lot of companies use some kind of proxy, whether it's in a firewall or whether it's in some kind of download accelerator or a bandwidth management tool or something like that. A lot of companies say to people, we don't really want you browsing directly onto the Internet from the work network. 
will make it as though you're browsing directly, but what you have to do is you have to go via our proxy server and the proxy will decide what to do with your requests. That way you can do web filtering, but also you can do things like bandwidth management for when things get busy to stop stuff breaking. If a thousand people need to download the same file, you can keep a local cache so it doesn't have to get downloaded over and over and over again. So very commonly used this idea of a proxy. It's almost like a man in the middle server that you might have on your that you have on your network, but particularly used for web traffic. Problem is, when you want to have something like this or you want to introduce it on a whole network, how do you tell everybody's browser on the network, hey, there's a proxy now, you need to go through it, it'll sort out all your web traffic for you. Here's the server name or here's the IP number, here's a magic port number. And everyone has to go into their browser and open, like if you've got Firefox, you have to go into settings, general network proxy, and you have to type in 10.8.6.3 colon 8338 or something like that. Really, really painful if everybody has to remember to go and set up their proxy by hand. So proxy auto configuration, Doug, it was invented in 1996 by Netscape. <laughs> Whoa. If you remember them. Oh, I sure do. And yeah. And they figured, hey, the main reason people want this is they want to configure the proxy in their browser on a network. So instead of just having a simple data file like a list of host names or a list of IP numbers, this auto configuration will be coming into a browser. Netscape's got this cool new thing called JavaScript. <laughs> Let's use JavaScript as our configuration language. Now, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and it's a cool idea. The idea is that in your proxy pack, your proxy auto configure, somewhere on the network, you have this magic file and a way, to, a way for it to get found. And Windows has an additional thing called WPAD. Windows Proxy Auto Discover, and that can tell you where to go, and that can feed you things like pack files, and that pushes JavaScript into your browser that configures your browser that says, well, if the person wants to go to this website, we don't care about the proxy, just let them do it. But for these, they need to go through the firewall. For this lot, well, they need to go through the load balancer. So it's possible to write quite a complicated bit of JavaScript, or you could just say the JavaScript function can just go, the proxy is at IP number colon port. And that's how a lot of companies use it. And the idea was, well, it's coming into the browser. The browser is supposed to be sandboxed. What's the problem with having auto configuration of a browser via JavaScript that's provided remotely, where it's probably not remote. It's somewhere on, the, on your own network, you hope. So long story short, this chap called Tim Perry, who goes by Pim Terry, on Twitter, mm -hmm. if you want to look him up. He creates an open source product and he, he, he sells a paid version of it called HTTP Toolkit. And it's basically, it's like a sort of develop, developer's version of something like Burp Suite, if you're familiar with that, or Mitten Proxy. Toolkits that you can use to intercept web traffic so you can debug applications that are misbehaving or look for security problems and whatnot. So this is his product and it's written in the Node .js programming language, programming environment, which is you know, JavaScript outside your browser used for apps. And a lot of people have been saying to Tim, hey, love your work, but why don't you support proxies like browsers do 
So when we want to use your product, say to help our developers debug something, they don't all have to go and fiddle. We can do manage it centrally. Why don't you add proxy support? And yeah, hey, then we can use the proxy pack file with your product. And he figured, okay, so doing the node thing, we've spoken about this on the podcast before, basically you use the node package manager and you go and you say, hey, there's a package which has already got all this functionality in it. It's called proxy-agent. Go and get that for me. And that goes, oh, well, I need these other three things and those need nine other things and those need 27 other things, whatever it is. And it fetches all these packages and it augments your product with all this code written by somebody else. But the good news in this case is because Tim figured, I'm subjecting myself to potentially remote, unknown, possibly untrusted JavaScript. Let me see what precautions the guys who wrote this proxy agent toolkit, let's see how well they did their security. And bless his heart, he decided to review their code and he found that they hadn't quite done it well enough. They had used a JavaScript tool called VM, Virtual Machine, which is designed to allow a chunk of JavaScript to run in an environment on its own, but that is not a sandbox. It's not designed to seal that bit of JavaScript off from the system as a whole. It's just designed, say, to be a way for you to run two instances of the same code so they don't collide. And in fact, as Tim pointed out, if you go to the JavaScript VM package module documentation, you will see in boldface, the VM module is not a security mechanism. Do not use it to run untrusted code. And he figured, well, if they've put that in boldface, maybe this bit of the code is wrong and he went out of his way to find out, is this exploitable? Yes, it is. It means you could send somebody a proxy configuration file if you're using this package, and it could behave in all other respects exactly like the official company one. But while you were about it, you could do any other code thing you wanted at the same time. So basically, generic, general purpose, remote code execution. And so we reported it and got it fixed and good on him for doing the code review. Okay, so short of uh, reporting and fixing, what uh, can people do? Four questions they can ask. Uh, one is, are you using any of the formerly buggy packages in this case? We've listed them in the Naked Security article. Pack Resolve, Pack Proxy Agent, and Proxy Agent. If you're using any of those, and you might be using them without realizing it, depending on what other software you've installed that might need them, then you need to make sure you have version 5.0.0 or later. If you are a programmer and you program using node.js, do you have a review process for new packages which enter your ecosystem, if you like, supply chain stuff that comes along for the ride, do I have time to review those 17 things as well as the one that I originally wanted? Because if you don't, you really should. This software gets plenty of downloads every week and it kind of looks as though nobody had taken a look yet. Another thing you can do if you're a programmer, ask yourself the question, have I read the fastidious manual? Have I checked on the security limitations of any tools that I'm using in my software that I think is there for security? Because in this case, it smells as though the coders of this proxy agent had figured, oh, well, if I use this VM module, that'll be enough. And if they just read a little bit further, 
to the stuff that's in boldface, they would have realized, whoops, that's not good enough. We need to find another way. And the last question you can ask yourself, Doug, is are you in the habit of assuming that because a software package in an environment like Node or Python or Ruby or PHP or whatever it is that works in this way, are you in the habit of assuming that lots and lots and lots of downloads means that most bugs will surely have been found by now? Because the packages in this case apparently get 3 million downloads a week. And yet, it may well be that Tim Perry was the first person to take this sort of a look at the code and find this problem and realize that it was something that needed fixing. That's fascinating and exciting because imagine being the person to find bugs in packages that are being downloaded 3 million times a week. I mean, that, that is exciting. He must have to check it and recheck it and recheck it, just wondering if he'd, he'd actually found something. Surely not, he, he must have thought. Yeah. So it's like that old saying that a task came in. It was so easy that anyone could have done it. Everybody assumed that somebody would do it. In the end, nobody did it. <laughs> yep. And that's maybe a little bit of a cliche, but it's only a cliche because it's kind of timeless. That was the point of the article that Tim Perry wrote about this, to say to people, this shows that doing your security reviews, even if you think someone else has surely done it before, is not a waste of time. Good on him. Good stuff. That is Poisoned Proxy Packs, the NPM package with a network-wide security hole on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And we will stick with the theme of security holes with this home security system hacking story, this seems like deja vu all over again, Paul. We talk about this a lot, yet it keeps cropping up. So what's happening with this story? Yes, it's almost as though it's not deja vu. It's just like perma-view. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like, oh, I saw it before. It's just like, I've never stopped seeing it. <laughs> Daily vu. <laughs> like burned onto my retina. <laughs> oh, dear, Doug, this was a researcher at a security company called Rapid7. You've probably heard of them. They make penetration testing tools, including the well-known Metasploit. And this researcher figured, hey, let's have a look at some IoT stuff, Internet of Things. And why not start with budget home security system? This one, it comes from a, a company called Fortress Security Store. You buy it online. They went for the, for the budget brand. The, the starter version, which is called the SO3 Wi-Fi Security System. Uh, recommended retail is on the site, 130 bucks. There's a more expensive one at 250 bucks that also lets you use a 3G, like a SIM card, mobile phone SIM card, as a connectivity backup. Uh, the researcher didn't look at that. And he figured, I wonder how easy it is to break in and control the alarm without permission. Well, the first thing he discovered, Doug, is, as you can imagine... Let's look at the cloud interface, the way you configure this through the cloud. And we know that any number of IoT systems have had authentication problems in the past. They've used hardwired passwords or badly chosen passwords or improperly secured passwords. Well, what he discovered is there was a web request he could make to the system that given a particular form of your username would return a thing that was identified by the system as an IME, I-M-E-I. Now, you're probably familiar with that on your mobile phone dial. I think it's star hash 06 hash. 
and your IME will come up. It's the International Mobile Equipment Identifier, I think it stands for. It's basically a number that's burned into your phone. Mobile networks use it so that even if you don't have a SIM card in your phone, they can track your device on the network. And importantly, these days, when phones get stolen, particularly if they get stolen in bulk from a shop, the IMEs are then blocked on the network, which greatly reduces the value of stolen phones. And apparently this has been a great disincentive to crooks to steal them. This device, the SO3 device, it didn't have a SIM card slot in it, but they were still talking about IME. So presumably they just decided to give each device a unique identifier of their own. IME instead of UUID mm -hmm. or UID or GUID or whatever. Some unique identifier. So you send in the username, it tells you back the IME that's of the device that's registered to that username. And then with the IME and the username, you basically can do system calls that include, but are not limited to, turn the alarm off and turn the alarm on. That seems bad. <laughs> that seems really bad. It's even slightly worse than that, Doug. Perfect. If anything is worse. Can you imagine how you might guess the person's username? Well, if it's like most things nowadays that are, they've just eschewed usernames altogether and gone with an email address, which is easily guessable. Bingo. Absolutely. That's how it works. If you know the email address the person used to register the device, which is probably their Gmail or Outlook.com address, Ugh. you can get their IME. And with their IME, you can turn their alarm off just before you burgle their property. And then, from what I can see, you can neatly turn it back on again afterwards. So when they come home, they won't even see that that's funny. I must have forgotten to turn the alarm on. <laughs> yeah, so like you said, it's basically guess email address, get permanent identification code, deactivate alarm remotely at will. You oh. don't even have to be nearby. You could do it on behalf of someone else who's phoned you up from around the corner saying, I'm going to burgle number 72. Can you turn the alarm off for me? And you can do it sitting in another country if you want. But there's more. Oh Fortunately, what's more is, well, what's worse is that what's more is even harder to fix. What's better is it's a part of the system that you don't actually have to use if you don't want to. And that relates to the key fob. Now, a lot of key fobs like garage door openers and car fobs and alarm fobs, like the ones you buy with the system, use 433 megahertz in the radio spectrum. It's The hardware is very, very cheap. It needs very little power. It's very easy to do. And that's what they're using for this. A very, very standard frequency used for simple little tiny key fob-like remote control devices. The problem is that you don't need expensive equipment to be able to decode, record, sniff out, replay, and do clever software-defined radio hacking stuff when you're below one gigahertz frequency. So if you wanted equipment that could do, say, simulate Wi-Fi equipment, you might need to spend, you know, a thousand, two thousand dollars or even more. This stuff he did, the, the researcher did with a, a radio frequency dongle, I think you can pick them up for well under fifty dollars. So he thought, well, let me see how the fobs work. So he recorded the radio frequency signal, the sort of radio shape that this thing made when he pressed the button. And he wondered what would happen if, obviously, if you play it back, it only works once, right? Because there'll be something cryptographic, may not be very strong in a cheap device, but it won't use exactly the same code every time. 
that would be like using your house number as a password. Yeah, okay. Um, except that he found out that it did. Oh, come on. Once he recorded the key fob with this cheap dongle, you could do a replay attack. So if you were near to someone's house or flat, apartment, or have to say this, if you were the abuser in an abusive relationship and you might have insider access to the key fob, then you could come back and pretend to have a fob later on and you can use it to turn the alarm on and off. So you can not only turn the alarm off when you want to enter unnoticed, you could also wait till the person's indoors and then turn the alarm on so it goes off and freaks them out, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So all in all, as home security goes, not very secure, Douglas. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so what can people do? The first thing you can do if you do have one of these systems, because apparently the reason this was published is Rapid7 reported it responsibly. The researcher communicated with them. And apparently the vendor decided, well... They don't see this as an issue worth fixing for their entry-level device, and they closed the issue. And then when they, when Rapid7 went back and said, look, you realise a certain amount of time, several months have elapsed, I think this all started in May, we're planning on doing the disclosure. And they didn't have a problem. They didn't say anything about that. They didn't say, oh, please don't. So apparently they were okay with, the, with this being disclosed so people knew. It looks as though if you have one of these systems now, there isn't going to be a firmware update even if there was a way to apply it. I don't know whether there is. I assume there is. But it looks like they consider this, you know, in the jargon, I won't fix. So the only thing you can really do for the email issue is what's often called security through obscurity. And that means don't use your regular email address. The good news is that doesn't mean you have to go and create a brand new email account with a brand new password and remember all of that. Most webmail services that I know, I know this, I've heard that this works with Gmail and I know it works with Outlook.com, which because I, I use this myself. After your, the, the name part of your email address, you can put plus sign and then some random characters of your choice. And emails to that address will be, de be delivered to your account, but you'll be able to tell them apart. And it was specifically designed as a feature that, so you could sign up to different newsletters. So you could sign up, say, P. Ducklin plus naked security at mm -hmm. outlook.com so I can filter separately. It's not perfect because email addresses have a way of getting out, but at least it means you're not stuck with a home security system where the password is basically the email address that you print on your business card mm -hmm. <laughs> or have shared with all your friends and have on all your social media accounts. Uh -huh. So that's how you can at least add some uniqueness into the mixture for the email address part, and therefore a casual crook is unlikely to be able to guess that. As for the key fob, given that it's a simple press the button, record the radio noise it makes, play it back later, your solution there, unfortunately, is don't use the key fobs. Turn them off, don't register them with the device, keep them in a cupboard somewhere, then you'll never be pressing them, there'll be nothing to record, and therefore nothing for anyone to play back later. So there you have it. Use a, use a wacky email address variant using the plus sign trick and don't use the key fobs because it looks as though at least if you've already bought it, definitely isn't going to get a fix whether they'll patch the firmware in future versions of the device. You'd like to think so, but we don't know yet. Okay, that is Pwned, the home security system that can be hacked with your email address on nakedsecurity.sophos.com.
Took a quick break for this week in tech history. This week, on September 9th, 1947, a real-life moth was found stuck inside Harvard University's Mark II computer. Although using the term bug to denote engineering glitches is believed to have been in use for years and years beforehand, it is believed that this incident led to the now ubiquitous debug. As legend has it, once the moth was removed from the Mark II, it was taped inside the engineering logbook and labeled the first case of an actual bug being found. Well, I love it when a metaphor turns into reality. <laughs> yes. Because Usually it's you, the you other way around. It was Thomas Edison, wasn't it, who, who, who talked about, oh, it's like bugs, like he, he could thought of it like having insects in the system. Yep. So he sort of felt of them as like creepy crawlies messing with things. So as you say, the term had been in use for 50 years or so already. Mm -hmm. Wasn't Rear Admiral Grace Hopper involved? From what I read, they weren't quite sure. It looked like a logbook that she would have used the type of logbook, but she, they weren't sure if it was hers or not. That's what I, that's what, what I read. Okay. All right, well, we shall move from uh, this bug to more bugs, some fun Firefox bugs in Firefox 92. And let's start with these. Uh, we've got some categories here. First is memory safety bugs, Paul. Yes, Mozilla in, in their products almost always has a couple of categories that they just they give them a CVE number. So there's a whole raft of bugs that will typically just have one CVE number. And they just have the general term memory safety bugs. And I love this, and I wish more vendors would take this sort of approach. Now, you could say, oh, well, mate, it sounds like they're being a bit casual, but at least they're being what you might call deeply honest. What this is, is where automated systems and their own researchers have found a whole bunch of problems like potential buffer overflows, potential use after free bugs, potential type confusion bugs, all the kind of things where the memory mismanagement stuff that often causes crashes and denial of services and maybe data leakages and whatnot. And looking at them, they're kind of thinking, we can't see off the top of our heads how you could actually use this to hack the whole system. But they say, and these are the words they use, some of these bugs show evidence of memory corruption. We presume that with enough effort, some of them could be exploited to run arbitrary code. <laughs> okay. In other words, they're saying we couldn't do it. We decided not to spend six months doing so, but we're going to be honest and say we're assuming the worst, we're patching them, and we're giving them a high impact classification. Good on them for just telling it like it is. We didn't exploit them. Maybe you can't, but let's assume you can. Yeah, I like that. Why don't you, yeah, just err on the side of caution. Okay, so we've got those, and we've got some Android intents. Yes, this is uh, an interesting bug that it, it's got a high impact. It's not critical, but it is an important reason to patch Firefox if you use it on Android. Basically, URLs using so-called intents on Android, it's a special way of having a URL that says, don't visit this in the browser, offer to use a specific app to deal with it. And the bug is not that the app might be buggy. The bug is mainly that you could have a URL where the person will click it and kind of thinks that they're going to use one app, a trusted app, and actually they end up using another app and the user interface isn't clear. It's, it's what's called a, a UI spoofing, user interface spoofing. In other words, you can, you can use a link that the user will click in good faith. They think they're managing the risks, but maybe behind the scenes, 
something naughty is going on that's been disguised because the screen isn't telling them the truth. You may never meet the issue, but then if you do, the whole idea is you'll never know because of the spoofing. Okay, and then we've got <laughs> URLs starting with... <laughs> I laughed when I saw this. <laughs> it's so great. URLs starting with MK. Now that, for many people, might be a blast from the past. It's such a blast from the past that I couldn't remember what it was. I couldn't even remember having seen it before. And I went looking in a Wikipedia's list of currently known URL schemes. A scheme just means the protocol, the way you deal with the URL. So we're most familiar with not having a scheme in a URL at all, where we don't type one and the browser assumes we meant to type HTTPS colon or HTTP colon. Old timers might remember mail to colon, FTP colon, mm -hmm. gopher colon, archie colon. You can even have T-E-L, tell colon, yep. which means what <laughs> follows is a telephone number. Yep. So use the dialer. I couldn't find out what MK was. And then I found a bug report, critical vulnerability in Internet Explorer 4.0. Full disclosure report, Doug, from 1998. Whoa. Bug handling MK colon schemes, which was some arcane compressed format, apparently, that Microsoft used around that time before web servers kind of transparently and HTTP just mostly did compression for you using gzip or brotli or whatever it is that gets used these days. So compression isn't something we think about much when we browse anymore. But you imagine when compression wasn't a big thing and almost all people were still using dial-up internet access, mm -hmm. it was probably quite a cool idea. But like many blasts from the past, this MK URL scheme lives on. Apparently, if you don't take active precautions on Windows networks, a lot of these old, no one uses them anymore, magic, weird, old URL types if you happen to click them, they still do old-fashioned stuff. And the bug is just great. The bug is that you might unintentionally run Internet Explorer by mistake. <laughs> and that's all you need to know. Like, the, the rest of the bugginess comes from that moment on. Navigating to MK URL schemes could load Internet Explorer. Nothing more needs to be said. You click the link and up starts Internet Explorer by mistake. Whoa, where did that come from? And maybe if you don't realize, you go, oh, it's a browser. You type in a URL and suddenly you're browsing with technology that was scary enough in 1998. Made me laugh, but it just goes to show how backward compatibility can hurt. Well, from oh no, it's Internet Explorer to oh no, it's the oh no. Let's get into the oh no at the end of our show. On Reddit, user IR Ranger writes, some background. I used to work help desk support remotely for a big pizza company when I was in college. Really, it just required me to be on the phone all day and do basic troubleshooting. So one day the phone rings and I pick it up. A user was asking for the password to a laptop my company gives out to all their employees. I told the user the password should be their email password. They replied back that it wasn't their laptop, it was one of their students and they found the phone number under the computer. Now, my follow-up question was where the student in question was. In my mind, I thought maybe the company recycles old laptops or sold them off. The teacher responded that the student was in a school district located 10 states away from the company. 
I asked them to read me off the serial number on the back of the laptop so I could report it to my supervisor and see if it was still active. There had been a few cases within the company of computers being stolen from company employees, and if this was the case, we needed to lock the computer ASAP. I kept the teacher on the phone and thanked them for their patience and pinged my supervisor. My supervisor was able to pull up a name that the laptop was assigned to and noted the laptop was still active. Dun, 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 the plot thickens. I wrote down the teacher's phone number and name and noted that I would have to call them back. I hung up the phone and called the owner of the company laptop. I asked two basic questions. Do you know where your laptop is? And do you have a child who goes to, insert school name here? The response was a mixture of laughter and relief, stating that the child's father had mixed up the laptops and that they would have to call the teacher now. I told my supervisor the computer was not stolen, and that ended there. How many among us have not accidentally grabbed the wrong laptop? A his and hers laptop, you both got the same laptop, you grab your wife's laptop, you leave for work. Happens all the time, but uh, usually you figure it out pretty quickly, not uh, days and days later. And that's why full disk encryption is a good idea, Doug. <laughs> Just in <laughs> case. It's not that you should assume that you can't trust your spouse or significant other, for example. It's just that if they've got the wrong laptop, they've taken it somewhere that you can't vouch for. And you should be encrypting your laptop anyway, because you could lose your own laptop. I have myself grabbed a fellow employee's laptop and an off-site and wandered off with it. So be careful. And as Paul says, full disk encryption is your friend in this instance. And hopefully your company has some sort of policy like that in place. Ours does, and that's how I figured out it wasn't mine. Well, if you have an oh no you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. And that's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay secure. secure.